All right, well, now we begin three sermons covering three chapters in Romans, Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, And in these chapters, Paul turns his attention to what went wrong with most of the Jewish people in his day. See, they rejected Christ. And how could this be? Now, some preachers will skip chapters 9 through 11, thinking that the congregations don't have the patience for it. I don't think that's our case here, right? Um, and, or, that, or because they think it's just irrelevant for today's time. But they're wrong. See, ultimately, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans isn't so much about the nation of Israel. It's about God. I do want to prepare you, though. This passage could become a stumbling stone. You may be tempted to place God in the witness stand, pressing him for answers. Answers he isn't obligated to give you. After all, he is God. Some pastors will take four sermons to cover this entire passage. So we're covering it all in one day. So we're going to move quickly through it. And chances are there's something that maybe doesn't get covered deep enough for you. And I'm sorry for that, but um, hit me up after the, after the sermon. In the end... Um, If you allow Paul's words to have their way with you, if you allow yourself to be stretched and humbled, well then prepare yourself to be taken even deeper into the love and mercy of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, but he hardens whomever he wills. He will say, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is, was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, uh, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, and um, in this moment, we confess that you are the potter, we are the clay. Um, things on earth often don't make sense to us, which is why we pray that your spirit would fill us with wisdom to comprehend the deep things of God, that we may be drawn more closely uh, to you, that we may more fully uh, love and, and appreciate your mercy towards us, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> what if I were to come home? I know I mentioned a trip last week's sermon, I think, but what if I were to come home to my family and say... <clears throat> and announced that, that I'm going to take them all on an around-the-world trip, and we're going to be leaving in four Fridays. Everyone would be excited, right? Around-the-world trip? That'd be really cool. And what if on four Fridays from now, everyone was packed up and lined at the door, but I told my middle child, sorry, you're not coming. What kind of father would do that? If they got a hold of me on social media, they would rip me apart, wouldn't they? Now, you should know that four Fridays from now is April Fool's Day, so joke's on them. But that's the kind of dad I am. <clears throat> but something similar seems to be, appears to be happening in our passage. Long ago, God promised to Abraham that he would bless him, that his offspring would come to grow into a mighty nation, and that all the world would be blessed through them. God had promised to take them sort of a, uh, in a sort of a way on a, around the trip world, so to speak. God had promised a Messiah, the Christ, who would come and, and Israel would be rescued and, and redeemed by him. But when the Messiah, when the Christ came, only a handful received Christ and put their trust in him. The rest were cut off from God's blessing in Christ. What went wrong? How could God allow for this? Is it some sort of mistake? Doesn't God love all of them? Why would God allow this to happen? Now, we're looking back a couple thousand years, and perhaps we're thinking, what does this really have interest for us today? Well, know this. We live on the east end of Long Island. We live in the Hamptons. The year-round population of the Hamptons is 10% um, Jewish population. The national average is less than 2%. Perhaps God wants to work in our hearts over the next three chapters to, to create a heart for our Jewish neighbors in this community that we can in some way uh, point them towards Christ, that they may experience the blessing 
of life in him. But also consider this, and this may hit home a little closer for some of you. Isn't it true many Christians wonder why their sons or daughters or brothers or sisters or perhaps husbands or wives have de- seem to have departed the faith? Parents will think, you know, God, I raised my children in the church. They, they got to sit under a great teaching about God's love and mercy towards them. So why have they departed? How did this happen? Parents, if you're not careful, you could place God on the witness stand. You can call out and question God and point your fingers at him, accusing him of failing you or failing them. But it's also true parents can put themselves on the witness stand and say, what did I do wrong? Maybe I should have done this or should have done that. This passage will help us this morning. With great compassion and heartfelt devotion, Paul corrects us. He peels back the layers this morning of God's character and God's ways. The sermon is titled, The The Sovereign Mercy of God. Now, I don't think I need to define the word mercy. We, we both, we all kind of get that, right? But the word sovereign has really fallen from Americans' vocabulary. A sovereign is a king or a queen or someone who is in absolute authority. And so to say that God is sovereign is to understand that there is no higher authority in the universe than God himself. But even more than that, that God is in control. And not just partially in control. God is in control of all things. Nothing happens anywhere in the universe without without at least God's permission or approval. And when it comes to those who receive God's mercy and those who don't, well, God is sovereign. For some of you, this is completely new. and All kinds of thoughts are going through your head. Like, Does that mean that people are just puppets in God's hands? No. Um, We're going to see next week a little bit about human beings' free will. For others here, you're a Christian, and you know that some Christians believe that God works this way, but you prefer to believe that God doesn't play any favorites. Or perhaps you're here this morning, and you've embraced that God is sovereign over people's salvation, but you still find yourself scratching your heads, right? Okay, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage in chunks and we're going to allow Paul to peel back some layers so that we can celebrate the sovereign mercy of God. Layer one is pulled back in verses one through five. The big idea here is, is, that, is that it grieved Paul and it should grieve us that there are countless people, some even close to us, that are cut off from Christ. In peeling back the layers, we see Paul's grieving heart. In verse 2, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And Paul goes on to say that he wishes that he could be accursed so that his fellow Jews who were accursed could be saved. This is truly utterly amazing. Paul is saying that that he would volunteer to spend eternity in hell so that all the rest of his Jewish um, brethren uh, could be released. As we peel back this layer, we see that, that Paul has a huge heart for the loss. If you're a parent here, perhaps your children are grown and they've departed from the ways of the Lord, you know Paul's anguish here, don't you? You're so burdened for your child that they would, that they would trust and find their life in Christ that, that you would gladly swap places with them, wouldn't you? My word to you this morning is yes, pursue that same heart 
that Paul shows us here. But with that, also pursue the same understanding that Paul has. Otherwise, your heart may be tempted to become callous. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to God's sovereign mercy. As Paul peels back this layer, we see how important it is to belong to Christ. Paul tells us that if you're cut off from Christ, then you're accursed. To be accursed means that your sins are are still on you, that you are really truly deserving God's judgment. Now, most Jews in Paul's day believed that they were okay. Why? Well, because they were descendants of Abraham, and they had the law of Moses. They figured that they were okay. And yet, um, they rejected the Messiah who came to die for their sins. See, they were already good. They didn't need a Savior, or so they thought. Today, so many people think they're okay with God because, you know, grandma or great-grandma is buried out back of the church. Uh, We don't have a cemetery here, so uh, hopefully she's not buried out back. Um, But... (laughs) Or some people think they're... (laughs) Just don't find a knife, all right? That's all I can say. Um, Or some people think they're okay because their version of God would never hold anyone accountable. We don't have time to go back into Romans, but but what we've seen clearly, Paul has shown us in the first at least three chapters, if not all the way up to chapter 8, is this, is that every human being is a sinner without excuse. And therefore, every human being needs Christ. Only through Christ can a person be washed of their sins and forever welcomed into God's family. So Paul reiterates for us the importance of knowing Christ. Paul also shows us how easy it is to miss Christ. Did you see that in the passage? If anyone should have welcomed Christ into their lives, it should have been Paul's Jewish contemporaries. God showered with them with all sorts of blessings and advantages. Paul lists them beginning in verse 5. They're the Israelites. They belong to the adoption. That is, God chose one man, Abraham, from all the people on the earth. God adopted him and said he would bless all of his offspring. We also see that that they were given the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Talk about privileges. And then the God of Israel gave them also wonderful promises of the Messiah to come. Verse 5 talks about this. It says, to them belong the patriarchs. That's That's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Check this out. Who is God over all? Blessed forever. Amen. God promised Israel that the Messiah Christ would come to redeem them and restore and lead lead God's people. Paul's reminding us that these Israelites had every advantage Everything in their favor to welcome and to receive and trust in Christ. And yet many did. Most did not. Most of the Jews in Jesus' day said no to Christ and went on their merry way. Now, if it's so easy for advantaged Jews um, to miss Jesus, how much more so us today? Paul peels back the layers in which we see that instead of getting angry with God, for how he works. Paul has a wonderful heart for others and longs to see them experience God's grace. And Paul shows us how important it is to belong to Christ as well as how easy it is to miss out on him. Layer two is peeled back in verses 6 through 13. Here's the big idea here. God hasn't failed. No, God has always been dispensing um, his mercy in this sovereign way. 
Paul comes right out and says, God's, God's not a failure. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then Paul goes on to show how God chooses who will receive mercy. Here's where we enter into those troubled waters that may be a little perplexing this morning. Chances are, after we go through this, some of you will want a little bit deeper explanation. There's a wonderful book on our book table, Chosen by God, by R.C. Sproul. Um, it's the book that I found very, very helpful early in my immature Christian life. Uh, not that I'm fully mature, but um, anyway, it was very, very helpful for me to wrap my head around what the Bible teaches, that, that God chooses who will receive his mercy. And that if you've come to place your trust in Christ, it's because God has first chosen you. How can this be, you say? Well, Paul says it's always been this way. Ever since God chose Abraham, this is how it has been. Paul says in verse 6, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all uh, are children of Abraham because they are his, his offspring. Now Israel was Jacob before God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Israel had the 12 sons. We have the 12 tribes of Israel. You get it? Okay. Um, Paul is saying that not all who are physically descended from Israel belong to the spiritual family of Israel. And he says not all who physically descended from Abraham are children of Abraham. That is those who God truly calls his children. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the son of his desperation with the servant girl. Isaac was the child of faith in the promises of God with his wife, Rebekah. Sarah. Um, what we see here is that, is that God didn't choose Ishmael. He chose who? Isaac. And then in verse 10, Paul points us back to Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. Rebekah had twin boys, two sons. And uh, they were fighting in the womb. And they were Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first. But God told Rebekah that the older one would serve the younger one. And God said that the one he loved was Jacob. But Esau he hated. God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. What kind of God would choose one person over another? A sovereign God. What criteria did God use to make his decision? Did he like Jacob's smile and was just kind of turned off by Esau's poor outlook on life? Did he not like those who hunt? <laughs> no. If you know the story of Jacob, then you know he was a petty, conniving mama's boy. In verse 11, you read, you read this. Check this out. Before either one of them had done anything good or bad, God made his decision. In verse 11, we read, though, there were, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God elects people. That is, he chooses people to experience his grace. And then at the right time, he calls them unto himself. The, the theological term for this is divine election. Now, I know this being election year, we probably need to define what election really means. You know, uh, you know today, you know, where everybody's all talking about the big election and stuff, and everyone's trying to find the right candidate. And so everyone's trying to sift through all the different candidates' qualities and abilities and positions. And, and our goal is to find the very, very best one, the most worthy candidate. 
And then we pick and we choose, we elect based on some sort of criteria that we find in them. But God does not elect people as you and I do. God does not look at human beings to see who's the best and choose them. See, the truth is none of us are worthy of being elected. So then what what is the criteria that God uses in choosing some and not others? We don't know. But we do know what it's not. We do know that, it, it, that God's choice isn't based on anything good or bad in us. In eternity past, long before the world was even created, God elected Jacob, but passed over Esau. This is what we briefly discussed two sermons ago, that God foreknew and predestined people to call into his kingdom, that they would experience God's coming glory. And the scripture says that God chose Jacob and Esau, and it wasn't based on anything that they were going to do that was good or bad. You see, it's not like God just looks in the future and, and says, oh, I know that person's going to, oh, that's a smart person. Look at that Mark Middlecoff. He's so smart. He chose Christ. Wow. But his brother didn't. Oh, well, you know. No, God doesn't look into the future to, to see what kind of decision we're going to make. Because you understand then, then if that's the case, then your salvation is based on works. The work of you believing and doing the right thing over and against not. But your salvation is by grace, by grace alone, through faith alone. And it's a sovereign God who has shown you mercy and given you life in Christ. I know this is a hard topic to wrap our heads around. Part of us want to reject this and kick it to side, but it's true. Don't have time to go much deeper. Get that book, chosen by God. But do consider this. Jacob's only hope was that God didn't look into the future to see if he was worthy to be chosen. Jacob was a petty, conniving mama's boy. I wouldn't have picked him. I don't even think Jacob would have picked himself. Maybe he would. And consider yourself. What hope would you have if your salvation was dependent upon God finding you blameless? If you're honest, you're thankful that God chose you and not based on any supposed goodness in you. Like Paul says, it's not because of works, but because of him who calls So in peeling back these layers, we see that even within the so-called chosen people of God, there are some who are not really chosen. They were born into the right physical family line, but because they were not elected by God, they never received God's mercy. I told you this wouldn't be easy. We peel back layer three in verses 14 through 18. The idea here is we're going we're to address the question, well, well, how can this be fair, Right? If you're a parent of more than one child, or you're a school teacher, um, no doubt you find yourself perpetually hounded by the cries, it's not fair. I'm not the only one, right? Okay, some of you have. All right, school teacher says yes. All right, there we go. In a Huffington Post article titled, 
It's not fair. Um, the author writes, as common and grating as the phrase is, parents never figure out why it doesn't go away. Their response is to use logic. Upon hearing the cry, mom uses logic, explaining why something is fair. Oh, yes, it is fair, because you got to go first last time, and now it's Billy's turn. It doesn't compute. And the child retorts, but it's not fair. Next, the parent lets her child know that the sad reality of life is that, well, life isn't fair. The problem with this is that the child is unhappy and can't get beyond that feeling. And telling a child that life isn't fair has zero meaning for that six-year-old who doesn't have much life experience under his belt. For us here today, the funny thing is, even when we have much life experience under our belts, do we not still cry? It's not fair. Paul addresses this reality in in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, is God not fair? And Paul's response, he says, by no means. Then he quotes Exodus 33, 19. There Moses asked God, God, he said, God, can I just see your glory? And God says, okay, all right. Um, And God says, yes, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful, and I will show compassion on whom I will have compassion. See, God is sovereign. We are not. God decides who will receive compassion from him and who will receive justice. But it's not fair, we say. No, it is fair. R.C. Sproul, in one of his commentaries, gives us this illustration. Listen closely. He says, If there are ten people who are guilty, and God sovereignly decides to pardon one of them and sentence the other nine, who has received an injustice? The nine who are sentenced received what they deserved, the just punishment for their sins. The nine received justice, the one received mercy, but none received injustice. You follow that? But so many people think, if there is a God, Mark, he just can't be like you're describing He just can't be that way. My God wouldn't be like that. Well, the reason that is is because most modern Americans approach this with the wrong assumptions. Most modern Americans begin with the the assumption that basically everybody is okay. All we need is a little more education, a few more laws, a little straightening out, a couple timeouts at the right time. Certainly people aren't so bad that God needs to judge them. But the Bible never gives that to us as a starting point. In fact, the Bible gives us just the exact opposite, that all people are born with a nature, a sin nature that's curved in on itself. Remember from a few weeks back, uh, Martin Luther's phrase, homo incurvatus et se, man curved in on himself, that, that every human being, until God does a work of 
calling and electing and bringing you into his mercy and sending his spirit upon you. Every human being is born with a life curved in on himself or herself. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a black hole. Uh, human beings are incapable of seeing beyond, to see God's glory. God must do the work of pulling us towards him. This is how we all are. We even take the good things of God and we use them for our own glory. That's how messed up we are. The Bible does not give us a starting point that everyone's basically okay. The only problem is with a few people out there, those meanies in the sandbox who spoiled it for the rest of us. No, the guilt lies on all of us. We're all culpable. And so unless God sovereignly decides to shower you with mercy, you will get what you deserve, which is justice. I told you this would be challenging passage. But here's the deal, my friends. As we peel back these layers, what really is it that Paul wants us to see? See, we're so busy cutting through the underbrush of perceived unfairness that we miss the big trees, the big trees of God's grace towards mankind. See, Paul's emphasis here in this passage isn't on God's justice. It's on what? God's mercy and compassion. It's all throughout this passage. One commentator writes, unless we realize that in his dealings with Abraham, with Isaac and Ishmael, and with Jacob and Esau, God was acting in mercy, we cannot understand Paul. Unless we understand that God was actually acting in mercy towards them, we won't understand what Paul is saying here. See, the big question here isn't, why does God only save some? But the big question is, why does God save any at all. We're asking the wrong questions, my friends. When I look at my own life before Christ, I became a Christian when I was 29. I, I, I can't help but think, but, but God, what were you thinking? <laughs> I mean, I offended him in all sorts of ways. I was so selfish, you know, uh, you know. I look back on that life of mine, and I was just one big bright billboard for my own glory. Oh, I'm going to have this great business, and everyone think I was a successful businessman, you know. If I were God, I would have rejected Mark Middlecoff. I cannot help but look back on how God called me into relationship with him and, 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 and acknowledge, can't help but acknowledge the fact that he welcomed me despite myself. I was vocally opposed to Christianity. I was in no way looking for God, but God came looking for me. Why? I really don't know. Why me and not my brother? Why my dad and not my mother? Why? Because God is sovereign, and it's up to him to decide. All I know is that it wasn't based on anything in me. If you see anything good in me, it's because of God's common grace towards humanity and because of God's specific grace towards me where he's making me more and more like Jesus. Thankfully, verse 16 is true. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, what? Who has mercy. <laughs> God has mercy. He's full of mercy and compassion. 
Now, I wanted to skip over verses uh, 17 and 18. And truthfully, I don't have a lot of time to cover it fully, but I got to at least talk a little bit about it, right? What's this hardening of Pharaoh stuff, right? So let's read it. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, and for this reason I, I even created you, is what he's saying, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Pharaoh was born and came to power all according to God's purposes. And it wasn't so that Pharaoh could receive mercy. It was so that God's power and glory could be seen in the powerful redemption of his people out of a cruel and evil man. And it's true, later when they entered into the promised land, if you, if you read, uh, you, you see that, that there were people who heard about God's power and glory and how he rescued the Israelites, and now they were coming, and people in the promised land, they were just shaking in their boots because of God's work there. See, God was using an evil man, Pharaoh, to bring about his good purposes and redemptive activity. God doesn't create evil, but he can use evil to bring about his good purposes. Talk about a sovereign God. What challenges us, though, is the fact that God hardens whomever he wills. Paul says that God hardened Pharaoh. What does he mean? Understand this. Pharaoh was already a wicked man with a hard heart towards God. He was already predisposed to reject God and God's people. The only thing that was keeping Pharaoh from becoming, becoming an even eviler, just made up that word, an even eviler man was God. My friends, the only reason why this world hasn't devolved into absolute utter evil and chaos is, that, is because God has placed restraints on evil in the world. Paul is saying that with Pharaoh, God removed these restraints. Pharaoh's evil disposition and rebelliousness, rebelliousness towards God was already there. God removed the restraints. Pharaoh already had a hard heart, and it became even harder. Does that make sense? I hope it does. That's all the time we got for that. All right. Um, so buy the book. All right. If you need a scholarship, I'll scholarship for you for it. All right. So we peel back the layer uh, number four. We're, we're almost wrapped up here. Um, and we see this in verses 19 through 29. I'm not really going to cover the last few verses that talk about a remnant in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the whole point is there is, you know, if God didn't even leave some people, there, there, there wouldn't be, um, you know, if, if God didn't have a remnant, he would be right to, to, to destroy the world like Sodom and Gomorrah. But thankfully, he hasn't done that. All right, so the big idea here, though, in verses 19 to 29 is this. Okay, I know some of you might get mad at me, but here's what it's saying here. We are all lumps of clay, and God can mold us how he wishes. Okay? If you take one thing out of here, you're a lump of clay, God's the potter. Okay? Paul, in verse 19, raises an objection that we may have. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God decides whether I receive mercy or not, then, then why blame me, right? After all, no one can resist his will. Why does he find fault with me? You guys been thinking of that? Is that going through your head? Maybe? Do you want Paul's answer? He doesn't give you one. 
not only does Paul not answer the question, he says such questions are illegitimate. Ouch. Paul challenges us as to why we even think we have a right to question God on these matters. Paul says, God is the potter and we are the clay. And clay cannot even begin to ask, what are you molding me into? That'd be silly, wouldn't it? Hey, what am I going to be? You know, oh, really? Is that it? Oh, you know, no, all right? Um, it's just, it, the, the clay can't talk back to the potter. Paul says the potter has the right to check this out, to, to cut one lump of clay and use one piece to make a beautiful fine vase and use the other to make a feeding trough for pigs. The fundamental problem with most of humanity is that we don't recognize that we are not the potter, but rather we are the clay. If you're here this morning and you're having a hard time embracing the fact that God shows mercy to some people but allows others to receive justice, if you're having a hard time, I get it. But ultimately, you fail to see that you are the creature and not the creator. Where were you when God created the universe? Huh? I'm not making these questions up. Go read the end of Job. It's the questions that God has for Job. You are the creature, not the creator. And the creator is good and glorious and loving and merciful. There's nothing wrong with him. He's deserving of our love and our wonder and our worship. And God is under no obligation to save anybody. And yet people take the fact that God only saves some and they turn it back on God's head and say, God's not fair because he doesn't save all. If you're having a hard time wrapping your head around how God works in these matters, spend time first meditating on who God is. He is the potter and you are the clay. Allow God to be the one who's on the throne. Acknowledge that he alone is sovereign, and thankfully so. I wouldn't want that job. The last point we need to see as we peel away this layer is this. It's because of the sovereign mercy of God that we come to know the riches of God's glory. When you go into a jewelry store to buy a diamond, the jeweler does what? He places the diamond on a black cloth. The glory of the diamond shines bright against the blackness of the cloth. So too, the glory of the riches of God's grace shines bright against the blackness of our sinful world. It's kind of the point that he's getting at in verses 21 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath like Pharaoh and like everybody else on this earth? What if much patience he endured, um, much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Do you know what a vessel of mercy is? You! 
If you're in Christ, you are a vessel of God's mercy. He's fashioned and formed you so that you can be filled to the brim with the mercy and the love and the grace of God. That's a pretty picture. Okay, there's two things you need to walk out of here knowing that you are the lump of clay that has been fashioned into a vessel of God's mercy. But that's not the point I was going to make. These words percolate with God's grace. These words point us to the cross of Christ. My friends, the cross of Christ is God's diamond of mercy held up against the black sinfulness of this world. If you harbor resentment to God for what you've seen of him in our passage, then you haven't taken in all the data points. There's an important data point that you are missing. You need to process the cross. When you properly survey the cross, you cannot continue to point your finger at God. See, at the same time in eternity past, when God decided to show mercy on you or not, he decided to send his son to make mercy possible for all of mankind. God didn't look into the future to see if you would believe in Christ or not. God looked into the future and saw Christ, his son, on the cross, that, that, that diamond of God's glory against the sinfulness of this world. And he looked towards that and he took great delight in that. And I don't know how he figured it out, but he said, Mark Middlecoff is going to experience that. And if you're in Christ, that's what, he's think, that's what he thought about you. Long before you said a cuss word or anything, right? Long before you helped the old lady across the street, God decided he was going to make that reality for you. God didn't look in the future to see whether you believe in Christ or not. God looked in the future and saw his son, Jesus Christ, for there for you. See, on the cross, Jesus became accursed and cut off so that we may be righteous and brought near. Talk about unfair. No one's crying out unfair there, are they? Jesus is the only human being who didn't deserve God's judgment, and yet he bore it so that you and I may receive mercy. God's glory, the riches of God's glory is to be seen on the cross. All right, so there you have it. We peel back some layers. Where does this leave you this morning? Perhaps you're worried. And I'm going to, perhaps you're, you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not one of the elect, right? Every time, you know, every time this topic is brought up over the years, I've come to realize that people come to question whether or not they are part of God's elect or not. But here's what I come to realize. Most all the time, they are. They are. There are people who have already been called by God's grace and experienced it. See, rarely do unbelievers ask such questions, right? But I would say, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, examine yourself to see that you belong to the household of God. That's a good thing to do. Some here are perhaps still offended by God at being described like this. This picture of God is far from your picture of God. Let me ask you this. Are you a potter who is fashioned a God of your own liking? The Bible repeatedly says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. God isn't a timid, powerless, wimpy God 
who's just sorry the world turned out this way but can't really do much about it? No. God is sovereign. He's on his throne. You either bow to you either bow your knee to him in this life or you will bow your knee to him in the next life, but then it'll be too late. For the rest of us who by God's grace know we've received God's mercy, let's work on this. Let's look to the cross and from there desire to develop the same heart and mind and outlook that Paul presents us in this passage. May our heart wrench over people who've been cut off from Christ. And yet let us not do so um, as those who are upset with God for the way in which he operates. And may we, like Paul, treasure God's mercy. May we humble ourselves before our sovereign God. May we marvel at this doctrine of divine election. May we let God be the potter and we the clay. And may we affirm God's patience with us and with the world. And may we see God's powerful glory in the cross. And may we see God's mercy and delight in it. Let's pray. Hmm. Oh, how your ways are so much higher than our ways. We're not your word in our hands. We would be clueless as to who you are and how you operate. Even now, our hearts are tempted to reject this, uh, to fashion a God that we like, that we can manage. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to show us what we need to know more fully about who you are, that you are a sovereign God. And that in the end, this means you are an amazingly lovable God. And it drives us to worship you all the more. We pray that this week would be a week where we ponder your sovereign mercy towards us. And may we see in the cross your power and your glory and your mercy. Amen.